so let's turn into our Bibles and uh, we'll be reading from the first letter of Paul to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 17. Paul's letter to Timothy, the first chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me read three verses from 1 Timothy chapter 1 that we read that uh, tie into the message tonight. First of all, verse 11 of chapter 1, where Paul writes, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, And he writes in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 17, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear people of God, were I to ask our boys and girls here and others as well this afternoon, What is special about this coming day, this coming week? And especially I'm thinking about the day of tomorrow. And I think if I ask that question in a more secular context, I'm sure the answer would rather be, at least from the boys and girls and the children, would be, oh, tomorrow. That's Halloween. And you're right, of course, it is Halloween tomorrow. By the world's 
schedule. And we know that that's a big thing today. Nobody can avoid knowing that it's going to be Halloween. The stores have all kinds of displays for it. You ride around the roads and the streets, when you listen to the radio or the television stations, you can't help be reminded that it is Halloween. It seems to get bigger all the time. But what does it celebrate? It celebrates essentially the world, the evil world and realm of demons, of Satan and all things that are connected with it. Commemorates that which is dark, that which is evil. Even though I'm well aware that most people don't take many things that uh, are displayed or that they do on that particular day seriously. And I realize that for little children, oftentimes, Halloween is strictly a matter of trick-or-treating, getting some candy freely. But I hope that all of our children and young people, and of course we as adults as well, realize there is something much more special that we should celebrate on October 31st, something that really is worth celebrating, but which sadly gets less and less attention all the time. In fact, I would say the vast majority of people in the world don't have any idea of what that is. But I hope and pray that you and I are very clear on what it is, not only, but will always remember it. October 31 is the day that we, in a special way, recall the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Yes, that day has been traditionally called in most churches Reformation Day. But I don't know how many really observe Reformation Day any longer in the churches. And hopefully why it is called that and what it means is something that will be explained to our children and to our youth in their homes in their schools, in their churches, and is celebrated by all. And so that's what I also want to do for you this afternoon, to rejoice with you and celebrate with you the wonderful meaning of the Reformation. This, of course, that I'm talking about October 31 is not a holy day mandated in the Bible. Neither is Christmas, for that matter. So we can really celebrate such events at any time that we choose. However, there is a a text that I often think about in connection with the Reformation. It's Isaiah 51, verse 1, where God says to his Old Testament people through the prophet, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. And God is using there the picture of a rock, a rock which by nature is something that stands and endures typically for a long time. It's solid, it's firm. To exhort his people to look to their spiritual heritage and foundation is like a rock. As they too look to the past, but then also live their lives today and look to the future. Look to the rocks as the prophet of God's covenant, mercy, of all of his saving dealings for and among his people throughout history, which provides for you too the foundation for your faith and for your life. And part of that foundation, 
Part of that spiritual heritage that we have, like a rock from which we are hewn, is what happened in the Reformation. You see, that event in the history of the church was a time of great spiritual discoveries. Or maybe I should use the word or call them rediscoveries. Because they were not totally new truths. They were not new ideas that were discovered in the Reformation, as we'll see. Interestingly, it was they were made, however, at a time when there were a lot of new discoveries made in the world. Historians, you may know, refer to the 15th and the 16th centuries as the age of discovery. It was the age of the great explorers, like Christopher Columbus, who discovered America in 1492. But about at the same time, there were some far greater discoveries being made by people of God, men of God, who under God's guidance discovered again spiritual truths of eternal significance. So that leads me now then to consider with you briefly four Reformation truths or rediscoveries. And they're listed for you on the sermon outline so you can see right away which they are. And And you may have certainly heard of them before. I trust you all have. This is something that really is not new perhaps to many of you but they always need re-emphasis. And the first one is that in the Reformation, you see, the source of all spiritual truth was rediscovered. And that source, of course, was the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. Yes, even though these Scriptures have been around for, for a long time already, but the Reformers found them again and understood once again what they taught, And that they alone provide the foundation, the sure foundation for our Christian faith and life. We typically call this basic truth, Scripture alone. Or those who like the Latin phrases, call it sola scriptura. Now we just read from Scripture, also called Holy Scripture, God's Word, or simply the Bible. As we read from in every worship service as you hear it expounded here in the church every Sunday again. And why is that? Simply because it contains and forms the basis for all of our beliefs. And one of those beliefs is that the Bible itself is the perfect, infallible, inspired word of God, communicated to us through human beings to be sure, but who were inspired by God so that their ultimate author is God himself. That was taught by our Lord Jesus when he prayed to his Father in John 17, verse 7, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It was taught by the Apostle Paul, like in his second letter to Timothy 3.16, the familiar text, all scripture is inspired of God. In the verse prior to that, verse 15, Paul wrote to Timothy in how from childhood, You've been acquainted with the sacred writings or the Holy Scriptures, is the other translation possible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Clearly for Paul, the Scriptures stood alone, alone as the Word of God. He also called it the Gospel. As you heard in that 11th verse of 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he calls God's Word the Gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. 
And now I have no time this afternoon to list the numerous texts which refer to the scriptures as the unique, inspired, and infallible word of God. But the early church recognized that truth already uh, many years before the Reformation, when it adopted the 66 books of the Bible that they said constitute the canon, the canon of scripture, the standard for our life and faith. I was sad to say it wasn't long after that that the church also began to lose its uh, sight of that truth. The medieval church, and there was only one medieval church really, it was called, of course, the Roman church or the Roman Catholic church. That church did two things, two things with the scriptures. One is they added to it. They added all kinds of ideas, beliefs and practices which the Bible did not contain or even teach and even contradicted it. Although they would, of course, admit that. For example, the church came up with uh, the notion of purgatory, that our souls first have to go to a place after we die called purgatory, where our souls have to be purified before they are fit for heaven. That's found nowhere in the Bible. And then the church came up with the idea that saints, whom they uh, identified as extraordinarily holy people, earned special merits with God through their life and through their good deeds. And then they could apply some of those merits to other sinners who were not as godly or holy as they, so they too could obtain God's favor, God's forgiveness. And especially they elevated Mary, the mother of our Savior, to be exalted as the one to whom Christians should all pray because she had special access to her son, Jesus Christ, and thus could obtain grace for people through her praying to her son. And so those all became key doctrines in the medieval church, all added by church leaders or councils or popes. And then secondly, I said they did two things with the word of God. One is they added to it, but secondly, at the same time, they began to ignore the Bible itself more and more. In fact, in the time of Luther and Calvin in the 16th century, very few church members knew the Bible. Very few could read it. In fact, it wasn't even published or available to them in their own language. It was all in Latin. In fact, the church discouraged its members, even forbade them from reading the scriptures if they could do so. Because the church said, well, you know, the common people, you really can't understand the Bible. The theologians must explain it to you, but you people shouldn't even read it. It will make you, it will confuse you. Even, even many of the priests didn't own Bibles. And certainly no ordinary members had any Bible. It was made a crime to have one in your home at some point in the Reformation. And when the people went to church, the Bible was never really explained, only the teachings of the church, and it was all done in a language that very few could understand, Latin you know, imagine, imagine you going to church every Sunday and not understanding a single word of the sermon or what's being told to you in the church. Every Sunday you hear sounds and words you don't even understand. And so the Bible is effectively silenced in the church. But all that changed with the Reformation. We typically date the Reformation, as you know, from October 31, 1517, which is 505 years ago now, because that was the day when the Roman Catholic monk 
by the name of Martin Luther, as he was a Roman Catholic monk at the time. And it was October 31, 1517, that Luther nailed a sheet of paper to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, which were 95 statements. They were called theses. They were challenging statements, challenging the teachings of the Church of Rome at that time, to which he belonged and in which he had grown up. And he nailed these 95 statements or theses to the front door of that church so that other monks, other theologians could then read them and respond to them. They're written in Latin, the language of the scholars. But four months later, they were translated into German. So non-educated people, so-called, could read them as well. And that's what led to their impact with the printing press having been invented just 50 years or so before that, these theses were all printed now by the thousands and they were circulated throughout the Holy Roman Empire, throughout Europe. And they were a direct challenge to the false teachings and practices of the church, which Luther claimed had no biblical basis. Well, as you can imagine, that caused an immense stir. Yes, tremendous uh, stir they lit a, Luther lit a fire here that could not be extinguished, even though the church, even the church could not really stamp it out. So they called Luther a heretic, and they then end up excommunicating him from the church. But the fire he started ignited the Reformation. And what it brought about was a return to the Scriptures, it rediscovered, as it were, the inspired word of God as the only foundation which we must believe and stand on. In fact, one of Luther's great legacies really was his translation of the Bible in the language that people could understand, in the German language, so they could all read it for themselves. And the preaching of the word of God became central again in the churches. John Calvin preached through most of the scriptures to his congregation in Geneva and in Strasbourg. And there were commentaries on virtually every single book of the Bible. One of my favorite stories, or incidents, I should say, pertains to a reformer not as well known to people today. His name was William Tyndale. He was an Englishman, but he was the one who offered one of the best translations and the earliest translation of the Bible into English cost him his life because his work was strictly forbade by the English church leaders at the time. And so he fled from England and he ended up in Belgium where he could continue his translation kind of secretly at some place in Belgium. But he was betrayed. He was betrayed by someone there. And so the civil authorities found him and they burned him at the stake. But what spurred Tyndale to produce his English translation was a remark by an English priest who had no use for the Bible and told him, he says, you know, he said to Luther, we would be better, uh, to Tyndale, we would be better off uh, without God's law than without the Pope's law. And Tyndale's response was this, if God spares my life, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. And well, that's what the Bible has done indeed. 
For those who have read it, studied it, believed it, it changed their hearts and their lives. It's the message of salvation that they came to know and believe. And today, you know, we have it in multitude of translations, right? In, lar- in many versions of Scripture. It's available virtually anywhere. And yet, what is the problem in the church today? The very same problem as was existent in the medieval church. The Bible is added to by many, and it's also ignored by the vast majority in our world who know very little of it. Oh, what a rediscovery the Reformation gave us. Scripture alone. May God help us to treasure it and absorb it in our hearts and understanding so that it will always be there to instruct us, to guide us, to comfort us. So that we can say with the Apostle Paul, this is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And why does Paul call it the gospel? Well, I think you all know what that word means. It means simply good news. That's why we have the scriptures. It provides for us the good news of God. And for one main reason, because it is a message that gives us the hope of salvation. It's a message of divine grace, of God's amazing grace to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads me to the second uh, major rediscovery of the Reformation, which can be expressed by that uh, little phrase, grace alone, which the Latin, again, is sola gratia. What exactly does, do we mean by that? Grace alone? What is grace? Grace can simply be defined as God's love for undeserving lost sinners. Grace comes from the holy God to the unholy sinner because it can only flow from one who is worthy to one who is unworthy. Old people show a little grace at times also in their lives. A a judge may give a, a criminal a less severe sentence than really what he may deserve. But we in ourselves, in God's sight, we are no more worthy than any criminal. And you know who knew that all too well? The Apostle Paul did. In fact, he focuses on that grace in our scripture lesson this afternoon from 1 Timothy, where he he recounts, as you heard, his own experience and recounts his own past. Paul writes in verses 12 and 13, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then he continues to to write in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Christ poured out his grace on Paul as from an overflowing cup. And that despite Paul admitting as he does in verses 15 and 16, that he was the worst of sinners. The chief of sinners is what it's called or translated in the King James Version. Paul knew that his salvation was only by God's grace. And it was not a cheap grace. It was a grace that cost the death of God's only son. 
Some have come up with the definition of grace as in a kind of an interesting little way uh, by using the letters of the word grace. Each letter, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's the only way we could be saved. It must come through the work of Christ alone. As Ephesians 2 says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And, and now that was another truth that, you know, that was largely lost and forgotten by almost all people in the time prior to the Reformation. The Church of Rome taught people to believe that, you know, if you just live a good enough life and do, try to be as pious as you can be and do good works, you'll, you'll be accepted. You'll be justified. You'll receive salvation. If you said enough prayers, if you did acts of penance, confessing your sins and then paying a little price for doing that, if you gave money to the church, your sins will be forgiven. Martin Luther also believed that at first. He, he, he prayed before his conversion. He prayed in his monastery cell, in a cold, cold cell, no heat. He would pray there for hours on end. He fasted. He beat himself. And then he thought, well, now God will surely show his grace and mercy to, to me and save my soul. Well, no matter how much he tried all of that, he could not obtain the assurance of salvation that he craved until he realized that he could only be saved by divine grace, by what God has done for him in Christ, not by what he did for himself. The basis for our salvation and justification does not lie in ourselves, but only in God, in his infinite grace. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so our response can only be the one that John Newton so beautifully gave us when he wrote to him, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Grace alone stands behind our salvation and eternal life. That's the glorious gospel that was rediscovered in the Reformation. And it ties in closely, very closely, to the third discovery or rediscovery made in the time of the Reformation, another biblical truth that's critical to know for all people, sinners, uh, believers, and unbelievers alike, to know, to accept, to remember. It can be expressed by the words of the phrase, faith alone, or the Latin equivalent, sola fides. For by grace you've been saved through faith says Ephesians 2, verse 8. And you know, it's important, I think, to, to note the preposition there, through. We're saved through faith. Because what does that indicate? It indicates simply that our faith itself does not save us. God always alone saves us. Christ is the one who saves. But faith is only the instrument through which God or Christ saves sinners. The Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day 23 makes very clear that faith is only the means. It's not a good deed. It's not a good deed which saves you. It's only the means of salvation. If, if you are drowning and I tossed out a rope to you and you grab onto that rope 
and I pull you into my boat, did the rope save you or did I save you? Well, obviously, the rope was only a means. The rope cannot save you or anyone but the one who pulled the rope. And even so, it's necessary, however, to hang on to the rope. Because what is faith? Faith is the means by which we are saved. Trusting in God alone to save us is what we need to do. Grace is God's work to undeserving, worthy sinners to save them. Faith is our wholehearted trust in God or in Christ to save us. And we must exercise that trust to be sure. Yes, it doesn't save by itself. Our deeds can never save us because they're all imperfect. They're all inadequately, inadequate and defiled. Uh, you probably know the text that changed Luther's life uh, and brought about his conversion, Romans 1.17, as it says, the just or the righteous person shall live by faith. In Romans 5, verse 1, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's also mentioned in the passage we read, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 14. We quoted it a moment ago, but listen to it again with a little different emphasis. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. With the faith. We need faith, indeed. Faith includes our personal trust in Christ and also our acceptance of all the truths of the gospel. And such faith is the only way of salvation. There's nothing else that we do or can do to be saved. As Paul told the Philippian jailer, who in desperation asked him, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul answered very simply, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Oh, to be sure, you and I have to live a Christian life. We must be godly persons. We have to obey the Ten Commandments. We must be eager to do good works. But they cannot help in the least to save us. They are the fruit. They are the indication, the evidence that our faith is a genuine faith. It's not faith and works. That's a dead end. As Luther would find out when he could not obtain assurance and peace through all the works he performed to please God, And not only did Luther discover this, John Calvin discovered that as well. He was brought up also in the Roman Catholic Church with a very godly mother and and father who was indeed employed by the church. His father was, worked for the church. But Calvin came to know the gospel. And he knew that it was only through faith that he could be saved by the only Redeemer. There's a beautiful hymn I I want you to realize, you know, we always sing Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is the one that Luther composed. There's also a beautiful hymn, by the way, in the, I know it's in the Blue Psalter hymnal, and the title of it is, I greet thee, whom I sure redeemer art. And they are words from John Calvin. Listen to the last stanza. Our hope is in no other save in thee. Our faith is built Upon thy promise free, come give us peace. Make us so strong and sure that we may conquerors be and ills endure. Is that the faith that is alive in your heart? 
Can you say, I know him whom I have believed? Faith in Christ alone is the only means of obtaining salvation. And while the person who has such faith in God and in Christ to whom God has manifested his grace, will also then cherish that fourth great reformation, rediscovery. And that one can be expressed by the simple phrase, God's glory alone, or to God alone be the glory, sola deo gloria, is the Latin phrase. You see, that's the ultimate goal of our salvation, as well as of all creation, as well as of our whole life. This is the one purpose, the one purpose that we have that God has for saving sinners is to give him glory. That should be the purpose for all of our life. And it's a truth that we find again and again, as you well know through the scriptures in Romans 11, 36, it says, for from him, from God and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Ephesians chapter 3 ends with the words, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And then there's that beautiful doxology, you know, that we read, 1 Timothy 1.17, where Paul says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And notice Paul exclaims this immediately after he had extolled God's gracious salvation of sinners like himself. Such salvation can only elicit the response to God alone, be the glory. What what a beautiful motto. It's especially, you know, what you and I as Calvinists, as Reformed persons, love to proclaim, glory to God alone. But it should be more than just nice words, beloved. It should be the purpose. It should be the passion for everything we do, for our worship, which we engage in every Sunday again, for our family life during the week, for our work life day by day, for our education of our children in our schools or in our homes and all our other endeavors. We, we, this is the whole purpose that we have for doing all of these things, not for ourselves, our praise, But as Paul writes to the Corinthians, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. And so when we think of the Reformation and the heritage we have received from it, all the doing of our God, may we continue to stand on the rock that endures, the rock of Christ and his word, which testifies of him and of the gospel that it proclaims about him. Let us always remember these great truths of the gospel, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, God's glory alone. May these continue to live and burn in our hearts and lives, and may we pass them on to those who, who follow us, to our children and our grandchildren, and all who follow. Yes, uh, may we pass them on to the world as well, as the only message of eternal life and of hope that any sinner has. Then the Reformation fire will not go out, you see. Then the gospel of the glory of the blessed God will continue to live in us. It will guide us. May it also then shine forth from us.
for the glory of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, indeed, we rejoice and are thankful for that rock from which we were hewn. The gospel, your word, your great work of salvation, and also as it was rediscovered again, the glorious gospel in the time of the Reformation. Uh, We thank you, O Lord, for having allowed us to come to know these truths, how they've been passed on to us by those who've gone before us, how we've come to cherish them as your children. And we pray that these truths may ever burn in our hearts as they did in the hearts of your people in times past, like in the times of the Reformation, that we may stand firmly upon them, knowing that they contain, indeed, the gospel contained in the Scriptures. So we pray that you will help us, O Lord, to respond also with gratitude, thankfulness, celebration, and also resolve that our life will be lived day by day by faith in you, in your word, acknowledging your grace, and all then lived to the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.